I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church and those joining us at any of our locations or online. It's just great to be together. And I believe that God is moving in powerful ways. Do you believe that God is moving right now? Some of you may be saying, yeah. Some of you may be saying, I'm not so sure about that. Last week, in our Easter services, over 10,000 people came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, and many of those were people that you brought, friends and neighbors and loved ones who came to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, my family invited a whole bunch of people to come, and then we had an after party and 48 people showed up (laughs) and ate two large hams and stayed. Like it's six o'clock, everybody's now eating dinner. Like the kids had eaten all the Easter egg candy by that time. And I'm dying, you know, four services over the weekend and all the stuff going on, I'm like, this is like incredible that we had all these people come, and it was so incredible that they came to worship, and then they came and joined us, and we got to celebrate together as families and interact with people. It was just so wonderful. So I know that that was going on for many of you over the Easter weekend, and then Thursday of this week, there's a a Bible study that student-led out of students from Hill Country Christian School, our Christian school, and on Thursday night, They had over 400 students attending this Bible study, and it wasn't just Hill Country Christian School kids. There were kids from all over the school districts around, representatives there, and they baptized 72 people on Thursday night. Sometimes if us old folks just get out of the way, let the Spirit work in our young people. Like God is actually moving in incredible ways, and we're just so excited about all the things that He is doing in so many lives. Now today, we're moving into this series, He Gets Us, and today we're going to talk about hurt. Now, not just any kind of hurt, but a very specific kind of hurt. That is hurt by religious people, or some people would say, I've been hurt by the church. Now, I don't know if you're noticing this, but I'm noticing it, that lots of neighbors, lots of friends, lots of coworkers, maybe some of you know students, people are starting to say in our culture, well, I'm done with the church. I'm not having anything to do with the church. Something happened at the church, or, you know, my experience was bad, or I've been hurt by somebody. How, How many of you know somebody that has said that to you somewhere along the way? Now, as you raise your hand across all campuses, keep it up. I want you to look around and see how many people know somebody that's actually verbalized that to you. It's become quite common. Now, I pulled some of my friends this week and asked them to tell me what the circumstances are that they hear. And I want to share those with you. The top number one thing that people hear is Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. In other words, have standards that people should live by that they promote, judgmental, but don't actually live them themselves, hypocritical. That was number one. Number two has to do with church leadership. 
that church leaders are either money-hungry or power-hungry or abusive in many forms of that and, most importantly, unaccountable for their behavior. The third one is something that people commonly say they feel, and that is the church is so focused on rules and standards and behavior that when I come to church, I feel so beat up, I can never live up to it. I feel unworthy. The fourth thing that we tend to hear from people is people say, some churches disagree with my lifestyle choices and because of that they attack me personally and I just don't feel welcome around Christian people or around any churches. Now the fifth category, I lump a whole bunch in and those, these are just people's personal experiences. And there's all kinds of personal experiences. Let me just give you an example. So single people may be saying, you know, all the church ever talks about is family. And I'm single, so I feel unseen in the church. Now, some people say, hey, I went through a crisis, I reached out, and nobody from the church helped me, and that hurt. Others would just say, my experience was, like, people were mean. I got in a small group, and people were mean, or I showed up, and like in the parking lot, people trying to get in and out. I didn't think that this was a Christian place. I thought this was like a UT game after it was over, like everybody <laughs> trying to run me down in the parking lot to get in and out of here. And, 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 and part of the reason why I believe church hurts hurt more deeply is because don't we all have some higher expectation that Christian people would behave better. Christian leaders would not take advantage of people, that they would do better. Now, can, can I make an honest confession? So I've been a lead pastor for 37 years. And I can tell you, of all those things I just listed, I've been accused of every one of those things. Now, my initial reaction is always defensive. Like, my first thought is, if you knew me, you wouldn't say that or you wouldn't think that. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work in my heart, and suddenly I realize there's a person that's hurting. Maybe my words or my actions or my inaction has created a place of pain that could isolate that person from Jesus and isolate that person from help. And I just want to take a moment and just say, from my heart to yours, I'm sorry. I am absolutely sorry that something I may have said or done or not done could have created any kind of barrier between you and Jesus or between you and the church. Some of you are saying, well, Tim, I, it's not you, but it is somebody, somewhere, someplace. And I know this might not mean that much to you, but I'm going to say it anyway on behalf of all the people that have done something along the way that created pain in your life. I just want to be one person who says, I am so sorry. You may never hear it from them, but from my heart to your heart, I just want you to know I am so sorry, but I also know this. I'm not the hero or the villain of anybody's story. I am not that important, but there is a hero 
of all of your stories, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus experienced the same kind of hurt from religious people that you may have experienced. In fact, Jesus was pursued by hateful religious people and killed. And all he was doing was bringing goodness to people in the world. So you need to know that Jesus understands. He gets us. He gets you. And and here's the thing I I want you to take away from our talk today, and that's this, that Jesus experienced religious wounds. He had them, and he can heal ours too. There's hope for you in the pain you've experienced that Jesus himself can heal your wounds. Now, I want you to see from the Bible a couple examples of how Jesus personally experienced that and what those attacks looked like. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 or pull up your smartphone, look up Matthew chapter 9, and and we're going to look at some specific places where Jesus experiences. The first thing that Jesus was attacked for is this. Jesus was attacked for hanging with the wrong people. In other words, the crime he was accused of committing is guilt by association. In other words, if you're hanging with the wrong people, then you're condoning their behavior, and if you're condoning their behavior, you're worse than them. And Jesus faced this particular criticism. I want you to see it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at at the tax collector booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So Jesus has now invited the wrong person to be one of his disciples. And you say, what's wrong with Matthew? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have your taxes done? Some of you are thinking, what's the matter with everybody? I have mine done by the end of January. And some of you are thinking, what's the matter with everybody? I've got two days. Folks, pray for us. My wife spent five hours yesterday doing the tax returns on the program that makes it easy, five hours. And then the program died. She lost the whole thing and had to then spend another three hours redoing the whole thing. So if you see her today, you give her a hug because she definitely needs it. Why do I hate paying taxes? Why do you hate paying taxes? I don't know about you, but for me, it's because like I have no idea what this money's being used for or where it's going. I know we spend a lot of money in this country, but I still have potholes in my streets, you know? Like, I don't know where the money's going. In Jesus' day, they knew exactly where the money was going. The money that Matthew was collecting was going to the Roman occupiers, their enemies, the Roman army that had come in and taken over the area, and they hired Jewish people, like people's brothers and sisters, to be the tax collectors, to collect money from their kinfolk, from the people in their village, from the people in their town, to give that money to the Roman occupiers so they could pay the army to stay there and oppress them. You talk about not wanting to pay taxes? What about the people 
that were willing to collect those taxes. And by the way, the way they got rich was they extorted people for more than what they owed because their pay was whatever they could get over and above what Rome demanded. And so that was life. And Matthew was one of those guys. Outcast from his family, excommunicated from the synagogue, living in the biggest house in town. And Jesus calls him to be his disciple. But he's got a bunch of friends, and it gets worse. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew doesn't have any friends except for the people that are like him, the tax collectors, and the sinners. That word refers to those who are notoriously, reputationally bad. And Jesus is hanging out with these people, having dinner with them. And then the religious crowd shows up. Notice in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we think we live in a cancel culture today, right? Oh, in Jesus' day, these people invented the original cancel culture. If you want to take down an influencer the best you thing you can do is go after all the followers because if the followers leave, the influencer has no influence, right? So they don't go right to Jesus. They go to his disciples. Hey, look what he's doing. Look who he's hanging out with, and he's hanging out with you, and you're hanging out with them. Is that who you want to be associated with? I mean, cancel culture. They go right to him. You talk about Jesus being criticized, hurt. Jesus came from heaven to bring love and healing and the message of transformation, and he's being criticized for being with people who need it. And here's what he says. On hearing this, verse 12, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus says to them is, listen, y'all think you have it all together? God didn't send me into the world for people who think they have it all together. God sent me into the world for people who need me. And then he tells them to go learn what Hosea 6, 6, a quote from the Old Testament, what it means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. That's God speaking to the nation of Israel, and here's what he's saying. God is saying that the purpose of sacrifice is to provide mercy for people. A sinner that's violated the law, that's done something wrong, how does God give them mercy? By providing a substitute, a sacrifice. And so, if you have a sacrifice but you don't have mercy, you've missed the whole point. Sacrifice exists to show mercy. In other words, Jesus came into the world to bring mercy to people, to help people that were in need. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, those people should not get God's help. They've messed up. Leave them in it. Let them go. And Jesus says, oh, you don't even know the heart of God. So Jesus is being criticized for actually caring for people. You talk about pain. Like, you're trying to help, and everybody's hearing about what you're doing wrong. Jesus gets us. 
My daughter shared with me a story that happened recently with a friend of hers. They play volleyball together, and, and her friend and she got to talking. Her friend is a high school teacher in a impoverished school here in Austin, and the kids in the school have a really difficult time. Many of them fall asleep on their desk in class because when they get home from school, they have to work a job until midnight, some of them later than that, just to help put food on the table for their family. And so they fall asleep in class. Some of them have never had a healthy relationship with an adult, much less siblings. They just don't have the skills or the knowledge or the understanding of how to relate and so you can imagine how hard it is for teachers in that setting. And she told my daughter, well, kids tend to get labeled by certain teachers or it, like this kid's this way, this kid's this way, this kid's And she said, like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. As hard as it is, she said, I get up every morning and every day for every child is a new day. Like, I, I don't bring the past in every day. I start with a new day. I want to care for these kids. I want to be there for them. And I have to let yesterday go. And I'm not going to label them into a category and then treat them that way. That's not what they need. And my daughter said to her, I really commend you for that. Do you realize that that's a godlike quality? And she said, What do you mean? And my daughter says, Don't you know in the Bible? It says that God's mercies are new every morning. Like every day when you get up, God starts fresh with you, bringing new mercies for each and every day. And the girl looked at her, doesn't go to church, doesn't believe that church is good, but she started to have tears rolling down her cheeks. And she said to my daughter, she said, I've never heard anybody describe God that way. I had no idea that Christians worshipped a God like that. And I asked myself the question, why? Why would she not know that? Could it be that at times we are more focused on ensuring that everybody's doing the right thing with the right people at the right time, like the religious leaders were, that we don't actually express who God really is to the people that we come in contact with. Jesus says, I came to fulfill God's plan for mercy, but you what you care about is, I'm hanging with the wrong crowd. The second thing Jesus was attacked for is not keeping the rules. Not keeping the rules. He, he's going to get criticized for that. And, and as he's being criticized for that, literally the crime that they're talking about is, Jesus, you're not measuring up. You're not doing the things the way you're supposed to be doing them. And if you're not, that means you're evil. That means you're bad. I don't know if any of you have ever felt this way before, but Jesus certainly did. He experienced that. If you'll turn over to chapter 12, just a couple pages over, I want to unpack this for us and see this occasion. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. 
Now they bypass the disciples, come right to Jesus and criticize, oh, you're the leader of this band and you're letting them do something that's unlawful? So I don't know about you, but here's my first question. Like, what are the religious leaders doing out in the wheat field following them around? <laughs> like, what, what's that for? It's like, don't you guys have anything better to do? How many of you, don't raise your hand on this one, how many of you have one of those gotcha people in your life? It just feels like they're always looking for something? Well, here they found something. The disciples were walking through the field. Here's what they were doing. Picking off a head of wheat, rubbing in their hands to rub the, cor- the, ch- the chaff off. Little pile of wheat, pop it in your mouth, chew it up, give you a little relief until your next meal. They say, that is not lawful. Now, let me give you a little background on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was actually instituted by God for the nation of Israel in Exodus, and it was a command, keep the command, do not work on the Sabbath. Six days you work, on the Sabbath you take the day off. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. But you know how human nature is. Anytime there's a rule, what do we do? What is work? What did he mean by that? And then you got the group that starts looking for the exception. Some of you know, like I'm one of those people, like I'm always looking for the loophole, right? What can I get away with? On the other side of the discussion, there's those people who say, well, we don't want anybody to do the wrong thing, so let's make a rule about the rule, about the rule, so we can make sure that nobody violates the rule about the rule about the rule, like we want to do that. And so the rabbis were all over the place on this, arguing and debating what constitutes work. What they were concerned about is getting it right. And if you don't get it right, then you do not measure up. Jesus feels this. He's experiencing this criticism that's coming directly from them and directly toward him. From a personal standpoint, I grew up in a background that was very rules-based. And as a kid growing up, like I knew that there was a whole bunch of things that if I did those things or didn't do those things, I was out. I was in trouble. I was an outcast. So just some examples of that. Like when I'm in high school, if your hair touched your ears, you were becoming one of those hippies. If your music had a beat, of the devil. I was told that if you really want to be a Christian, what you need to do is you need to carry your Bible to school. Don't put it in your locker. You need to carry it to class, even though Like, this is a trig class. Got to carry your Bible to class. And when you walk down the hall, you had to put your Bible on the outside of the books so that people would see your Bible and know. And, like, back in those days, yeah, like, I have to use one of these now so I can see the thing. Uh, But, like, big, like, here I am. 
Those were just some basics. I could go on and on and on. Now, how many of you here have seen the Jesus Revolution? Raise your hand. Okay, a whole bunch of you have seen the Jesus Revolution. I highly recommend that. The Jesus Revolution was a, is a movie that was made about the time I was growing up. And during that time, the baby boomers who invented sex, drugs, rock, and roll who invented the party world, who invented the anti-society movements. Like a lot of, of, of the younger folks, millennials and Gen Zs, are thinking, I thought we came up with a lot of that. No, 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 no. Your parents and your grandparents were doing that stuff way before you ever thought about it. And we had a whole generation that was walking away from the church and walking away from Jesus, and four major movements got brought on the scene working to save the baby boomers, to evangelize the baby boomers who were walking away. One of those was the Jesus People Movement that started in California among the hippies, and that's what the movie is all about, seeing thousands of people a week, these young people coming into the church, getting baptized in the ocean, having their lives transformed. Now, that movement never came to my church because the people in my church could not see it. You look like them. You don't fit here. And here's what's so sad. I mean, I'm talking about sincere, sincere people praying in my church that God would bring revival and save the people, the generation who was walking away, but never got to experience it because they were wrapped up in the legalistic rules. I got to tell you, so many of the people I grew up with walked away from the church. They walked away from the church, and it had nothing to do with Jesus It had everything to do with the blind spots of a generation, which makes me wonder today, what would happen if God was doing a major work? Would we have a difficult time seeing it because of obstacles that we have? So Jesus comes to earth with a revolutionary movement, and he's going after the non-religious people And what does he get for that? He gets criticized and criticized and criticized along the way. I want to show you one more area they criticized him in, one more attack on him. They also attacked him for doing good things by evil means, doing good things by evil means. In other words, here's his crime. Jesus' crime was we assume the worst of you. We've labeled you. And no matter what you do, we will never accept anything good coming from you. Look at chapter 9 really quickly. I want to show you a couple more verses in verse 32. Here's one more situation. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Wow! miracle. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. 
Jesus can't catch a break. Their deal is anything good that comes from you is of the devil, even if it appears to be good. Jesus experienced hurt all on the way in his ministry. And I know some of you have too. And it comes in all different kinds of forms, but I know what it feels like because I've experienced it in my life. I've sat with some of you and cried with some of you over things that you've had to deal with, things that people have done and said to you that were devastating. One of the greatest and most difficult things was sitting with my kids. And in some cases... I have a child looking at me going, how could that person do this to me? How do you answer that question? This deep pain. But there is hope since Jesus experienced it and he overcame it, I believe that he can help you. And so what I'm going to do is a little risky now. I'm going to propose to you some things that you might consider if you've been hurt or some things you may think about, take some notes on if you know somebody's been hurt because I believe that Jesus has a pathway forward to move you in a direction that can help you overcome the hurt and move into a major place of health. Now, I know some of you don't believe what I'm saying, and I'm okay with that. Let me just say it, receive it, and see what God says to you, okay? So, first of all, how do I begin to deal with the hurt? Here's the first step in the process. Identify the true source of your hurt. Where did your hurt come from? Be specific. Generalized hurt. Oh, everybody is this way to me, or all the people do that to me. Generalized hurt is very hard to heal. It's just very hard to heal. So when I, people, people say to me, well, I've been hurt by the church. I want to ask the question, are you saying like the church as in all churches in the world? Are you saying you were hurt by a church or a leader in a church or several churches? Maybe it was a denomination that you were part of. But, you know, the church literally is people. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I've been hurt by Hill Country Bible Church. And I, I, I always ask the question, who hurt you? Who is the person? Who are the people? Is it me? Because if you can identify who and get it down to that kind of focus... It's much easier to walk through a process of healing and restoration if you feel like it's everybody. If it's everything and you generalize it out, there's almost no way to move through that in a meaningful way. And what that tends to do then is to potentially isolate you from opportunities that God intends to use to help you to care for you, to love you. And Satan could possibly win a double victory. The first one was when the hurt came, 
And the second one is the isolation of feeling unsafe and unable to embrace and move forward with others. So that's the first step. Here's the second step. And again, I acknowledge that this is hard, so just listen to it with an open mind and see what God says to you. Here's the second one. Process your hurt with God. Most of the time, our hurt is focused on the person or the people or the circumstances or the institutions that we feel like hurt us. And that's where the processing takes place. Oftentimes we bring some people in to help us, maybe even get a counselor or somebody like that. But oftentimes the loop is between what happened and the people who did it and you and it stays in that loop. And what I'm encouraging you to do is think outside that loop and realize that God is the one who can actually help you. Now here's what I believe. In the life of Jesus, we see Jesus spending time in prayer. In fact, leaving the disciples, spending nights in prayer, going early in the morning to talk to his father. Now, when a son and a father talk that regularly, don't they talk about the circumstances of their life? And I believe that Jesus told the father what the Pharisees said about him, what they accused him of, what people were doing with his good work and how they were twisting it and calling him evil, and I believe that he shared that with the Father and that the Father helped him in his humanity deal with the problems, the hurts, the pain, and what I'm suggesting to you is that you open yourself up and say, God, you know my hurt. I'm going to pause from the refrain of saying, you should have stopped it and ask the question, What do you want to help me move through it, and how can I grow in it and from it? Sometimes there's something healthy that comes out of hardship. Thomas Akempis, a guy who wrote devotional books back in the 1500s, he has a statement. I love his statement. I'll put it up here for you. He said it's good that we at times endure opposition that we are evilly and untruly judged when our actions and intentions are good. Now, that seems so counterintuitive. Why would it be somehow helpful when I'm doing the right thing for the right reason for somebody to criticize me? How is that healthy? He goes on to explain. Often such experiences promote, there's the word, humility and protect us from vainglory, which is an old word for pride. I don't know about you. When I'm doing the right thing for the right reason, it's not hard for me to start going, man, you're doing the right thing for the right reason. Easy for pride to slip in. Sometimes when you get unjustly treated, it forces you to pause for a moment. And here's what he says happens in the pause. He says, for then we seek God's witness in the heart. In other words, when I'm criticized, if I'm really open to let God speak, then I'm willing to say, God, you look at my heart. See what's going on in there. You look at what happened. Is there anything that I may have brought to the circumstances that I need to be aware of? Or... If this was just totally, completely evil that was directed at me, 
How is it possible that you could potentially strengthen me, make me a wiser person, give me compassion for other people who've experienced it, literally become a healer of others through the pain that I received? That doesn't minimize the hurt, but it actually may maximize your ability to bring love and mercy and truth into the world. That's not going to happen without inviting God into your circumstances and processing with God, God, work with me, help me, show me, guide me, just like Jesus did with his Father. And finally, I'm going to bring you to the hardest one. Again, I would just say, just listen, think about it. Here we go. Forgive. Forgive. Here's what's important for you to understand. Forgiveness does not require any action on the other person's part. The other person doesn't have to say they're sorry for you to forgive. Forgiveness is something that you can grant, you can offer to somebody else. You don't even have to tell them. You can just forgive. You can offer to somebody else, and what it does is it frees you. It frees you of carrying around the anger the frustration, the hurt, the bitterness about somebody else, and you now have freedom, okay? So forgive and re-engage. Come back home. Come be part of the family of believers. Come put yourself back in ministry. Come put yourself back in community. Come put yourself back in trust. And here's why. To find joy and freedom Two of the most important things that make life worthwhile are freedom. And if you can't be part of something because of what somebody did to you, you have allowed their behavior to put you in a prison so that you no longer can connect with God's family, the church. You're stuck outside of it, and you are now allowing what they did to control you. That is a prison And that doesn't bring life. Second is joy. God calls us into community. And there is joy in relationships. Isolation robs us of our joy. We were created to benefit from other people. Our body chemistry is wired. The joy comes in bonding, which comes through eye contact with other people. God made us for each other. And if you can't be around others, if your friends have to stay away, they miss out on that joy. Now here's what I want you to notice as we finish this message. Jesus Christ came to earth to do good, to bring love and salvation. And the last act of hostility against Jesus by humans was nailing him to the cross. They killed him. And while they killed him, they were mocking him. Literally, these religious leaders gathered around here and they were throwing insults at him and mocking him while he was being nailed to the cross, while he was being raised, while he was suffering. And what came from him? Father, forgive them. Jesus was dying to pay for their sins. 
and for your sins and for my sins. I just happen to believe that if Jesus has the power on the cross to overcome the hurt and to be able to extend grace and love to others, that he has the power in your life to help you heal from whatever hurt you've experienced. He can do it. I'm just calling on you today. Just calling on you, inviting you. Let Jesus help you. Invite him in. You may say, there's nothing that can ever move me past this. I just want to say, I believe that Jesus can. Open your hands. Open your heart. Invite him in. Let him, in his power as God, transform you. I want to pray that you would open your heart and let Jesus begin to do the work that would bring you freedom and joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just thank you for sending your son into the world and walking with Jesus every step of the way. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and absorbed the hurtful things of people and persevered to share your love, your mercy, your salvation with us. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you have the power. I believe you have the power to find the darkest place in the person that's hurting the most in this moment and step in and bring light and love and healing. And Father, I pray that today each of us would say yes, Jesus. Yes, come. Enter into my pain. Heal me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.